This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Yes! Thank you everybody for joining us to the final summer series episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, with me as always, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Anybody who is lucky enough to be tuning in tonight or sometime later this week is going to be witness to a keeping Carlson, first, we are going to be promoting a Tier 2 Cupful team to a vacant spot in Tier 1 live on this very show by Lottery. More on that later in the show. <laughs> yeah, by the way, he's talking about the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. We'll, we'll talk about all that later. We've got a big show tonight for you. We're very excited. Like I said, you know, this is it. Like, we're going into the preseason now. This is the last summer series episode. We're going to talk about some news, of course, at the same time. We're also going to be talking about some of the things we've prepared that we want to talk about. Last uh, episode, you might remember, we discussed some players we think have lost elite status. Or no, who had gained elite status. Now we're going to talk about some players we think have lost elite status. We'll get into all of that. We're very excited. Before we start, Let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. At this point of the year, there's only one thing to say about DauberHockey.com. Like, yes, it's a great website. Yes, they have very interesting articles and rankings and all of that. But really, the reason why they're famous and the reason why they're the best is because of their guide, their yearly guide. It gets updated all throughout the preseason until the season starts. And I think even during the season, they're updating some things. But you could download the guide now. You could get updated rankings. You get a spreadsheet of the rankings. Plus, you get the whole guide where they're explaining a whole bunch of things. It's really great. Check it out, DauberHockey.com. The guide is the reason for the season. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, no, and there's all tons. Like, it's not just straight up projections. You're not just getting a list that says this player is going to get this many points. There's lots of tidbits. There's evidence. There's reasoning why. And on top of that, there's a whole other slate of stuff. Like, if you're going to buy the guide, may I helpfully suggest you include Fantasy Hockey Geek Elon? Maybe we'll talk about that more on a later show. But it's a great draft prep tool for customizing the rankings to fit your own league's point system. Lots of great tools over there, so you should check them out. We might be referencing the guide a little bit throughout the episode. There's a really good part of it where it talks about teams that have a lot of back-to-backs in the upcoming season, teams that have favorable schedules, which is really useful when you're deciding which players you want. We discussed that actually a lot on our patron cast last Wednesday. Just a tidbit, Buffalo has the most back-to-backs with 19, and Edmonton has the least back-to-backs with 10. So that's something to consider when you're drafting a goalie from one of those teams. But okay, that's a conversation for another time. Brian, let's get into the first fancy hockey headline of the week or i guess of the last couple of weeks the rangers got to work late in the summer you know they had lost keith yandel they didn't really do anything to replace him but then at least now they started to get busy with signings and first probably the most noteworthy signing at least in terms of the news everyone was talking about this guy the rangers were the winners of the jimmy vesey sweepstakes and a lot of people are wondering just who, like, who is this guy? Or at this point, I guess we all know who he is. He won the Hobie Baker Trophy last year. He had a good season with Harvard. He was drafted in like 2012 by Nashville, but now he goes back, or he didn't go back into the draft and he ended up becoming eligible as a free agent and any team was able to sign him. The Rangers get him. A lot of teams wanted him. And I'm just very curious to know, Brian, what is the upside of this guy? Because we've been hearing so much about him in the news. It's almost as if we should expect him to be a guy who's going to have a big fantasy impact. But at the same time, he's Jimmy Vesey. He was drafted in the in the third round. So what, what's the deal? And should we care? So I'm going to go ahead and say no. 
you shouldn't care a whole lot. This is a guy, essentially what an NHL team is getting with Jimmy VZ, by the way, Oops. is that he's somebody that can hopefully jump right into an NHL lineup and be a serviceable player. And that's not something you can get every day. Usually you got to pick somebody up in the draft, wait a few years, and then maybe it's going to work out. Jimmy is a guy who might be able to just step in and do that right off the bat. No development time needed, just plug and play. And that's the attraction with him. It's not going to be a bunch of goals. Any team expecting that from him, I think, was misguided. Nobody with the same pedigree as him, who's come up through the same system and scored similar point totals, has ever really come onto the scene and exploded in terms of points and assists and goals. So that said, I'm not expecting really any reason for you to draft Jeremy VZ in your draft. There's not a whole lot of reason to desire him on your fantasy team unless like cultural cachet is one of your categories. Well, I mean, the only counter argument that I would give you, Brian, is he did win this Hobie Baker Award for college hockey players. The last winner before him was Jack Eichel, and the winner before him was Johnny Gojo. So there has been a good run of valuable players. Of course, Jack Eichel was drafted second overall in his draft. Gojo maybe is a special exception. But, like, can VC do something? I guess I do agree with you, though. It's like the hype. And we have to remember, why was there so much hype around him? The reason is because he's a guy that normally you'd have to get in the draft. And, and you know, if you think of him as like a, maybe a second round draft pick, normally we don't expect those guys to come in and have huge impacts. We expect them to be like serviceable NHL players. But it's not like, you know, one of these guys like McDavid or Eichel or even Ehlers, Larkin, you know, not it's not one of these high first round guys, but a second round player still in a big draft. NHL teams would love to get an extra second round pick. They get traded around all the time. And here was the opportunity for a team to get one without having to actually pay it for it. Like he, he's going to get paid the regular rookie price and they didn't have to use a draft pick on him. So that's why all the teams wanted him. It doesn't necessarily mean that they think he's going to be this impact NHL player. So we have to remember that. But Brian, what do you think, though, just quickly about my thoughts on the fact that Hobie Baker winners have been having a good run lately? I don't think much of it, Elon. I don't know that VZ's scoring really compares to, say, Johnny Goodrow or other guys who have come out of college and have had NHL success lately. So I am going to stay very cool on Jimmy VZ. And by the way, you said they could just offer him, you know, a regular rookie contract. Not totally the case, so he, he's not making a ton. His cap hit is only a million bucks or just under that. But with bonuses, his average annual value is actually closer to $4 million, according to General Fanager. Okay. Well, good for him. So we'll see. Obviously, he's a guy that lets someone else draft in your league, especially if someone is ranking him really high, unless you're in a very deep keeper league and, you know, maybe a 30, 40 point guy has value. I mean, we'll all be watching him. We'll be curious to see how he does and we'll discuss him on the podcast. If he makes an impact, he'll be competing to get into the Rangers top six, I guess, with another guy that they recently signed, Brandon Peary. Yeah, Brandon Peary. You you threw to me because you saw, I, I just wanted to add one more thing about VCs that we didn't actually offer projection for him. And I think you're hoping for half point per game at best from him if you're adding him to your team. If you are in a deep league that's going to draft players of that ilk, you know he's probably going to get some opportunity and he's probably going to score a few points by being a middle six guy. And adding Brandon Peary actually is another middle six guy for New York who already added other middle six guys earlier in the summer. They were actually active on July 1st, although nobody noticed, they were just noticing that they weren't re-signing Yandel. Instead, they were signing guys like Michael Grabner and Nathan Gerby, both serviceable NHLers who have had their moments and, you know, each have had their times when they've been able to score goals or drive play or just be good guys who aren't top-line guys but aren't grinders either. They are players who can occasionally move the puck forward and, you know, they would have commanded a higher salary if they were really good at it, but... They're serviceable pieces that are going to fit in that now suddenly an oddly deep Rangers top nine. And I don't say oddly because it's weird for the Rangers to have depth. I say oddly because there's just so many second and third line guys that we're wondering which one's going to step up. And there's not a ton of room in the top six too, right? You've got Stepan, Nash, Zuccarello are the top at each of their positions, of course. And then down the middle, you've got Zibanejad. And Oscar Lindbergh made a bit of noise last year. Chris Kreider's on the left side already now with Grabner, Peary, and Vizi and Gerby. And then on the right side, you've got Matt Zuccarello with Kevin Hayes and JT Miller. So before this signing bonanza, 
adding these three middle six guys, the Rangers essentially had their depth chart filled out. So what I see this doing is creating a ton of internal competition. And I would not be reaching for any of these guys at your draft. Like you might be excited and think, oh, this is finally Peary's chance to break out because his underlying numbers have been, you know, halfway to decent or maybe all the way to decent in several of his stops, his very brief stops in the NHL along the way in Florida, Chicago, Anaheim. But there's no minutes to just jump in and do a lot with and power play time is going to be tight amongst this group. So I feel like it's good for the guy who's able to rise above and really get the leg up on the rest of the group. But at this point, odds are even on who that's going to be. Right. So it's hard to decide which of these sort of middle six guys to get in the draft. Like you make a good point. Like you got Stefan, Zibanejad, Nash, I guess Kreider, Zuccarello, maybe Kevin Hayes and JT Miller. I don't know. Like, I don't even know if you really draft like a Kevin Hayes or a JT Miller. So you really only have like four forwards on the Rangers that you might consider drafting. And then the rest of these guys might be at the top of our free agent list, like all throughout the year. And maybe different ones will jump onto the top line and the top power play at different times. And we'll discuss them obviously throughout the season on keeping Carlson as they become fantasy relevant. I think Peary is interesting just because he had that run I don't know if you remember Brian I think it was not last season but the season before right at the end with Florida he was like scoring a goal almost every game he had this great scoring streak going he ended the year that was 2014-15 right with 24 points in 49 games half point per game and so a lot of us thought that maybe he would be a good guy to grab for the next season because maybe he'd be able to keep that hot streak going didn't really happen couldn't really even crack the top six for much of the season for Florida before he got traded to Anaheim ended the year with only 29 points in 61 games so I guess just like Jimmy VC, I wouldn't expect more than a half point per game. And that might even be overshooting it. But it obviously depends on the role. And we don't know what role that these guys will have. But, you know, Brian, you mentioned Keith Yandel. And we talked about him leaving the Rangers uh, like a few episodes ago, back when we were talking about all the interesting free agent signings. And you know what? We talked about what we thought this meant for the fantasy impact on Yandel and maybe on Ekblad and the guys on Florida. But we didn't really discuss what that meant for the Rangers and specifically Ryan McDonough. This is a defenseman who was the top power play defenseman on the Rangers a couple of seasons ago before they got Dan Boyle and before they got Keith Yandel. And all of a sudden now McDonough finds himself once again in that role there's not really anyone else on the depth chart that I can see being higher than him as the top defense on the power play like you look and besides McDonough you have like Girardi Kevin Klein Mark Stahl like none of these guys are known for being offensive powerhouses a lot of them aren't even known for being defensive as I know patron Ian would say when talking about Dan Girardi the Ryan McDonough says career high 43 points in 77 games. That was in 2013, 2014. Conveniently, the last time he was like the main top power play defenseman on the team. Do we think that 43 points or let's say a 45 point ceiling or floor, like around that range, should we now be expecting that from him? Because if so, that makes him a pretty fantasy relevant defenseman, especially since he gets his fair share of blocks. Well, one thing he's got going for him that you've already tapped into is that on the Rangers blue line, it's like the opposite situation of the forward core, right? They have plenty of serviceable guys, but in more of a negative way than the forward core has serviceable guys. When you look down their depth chart on D, you've got McDonough, all right, he's pretty good. And then Girardi, who has not been good at all for the last several years now. Kevin Klein, Mark Stahl, who, you know, have proven themselves to be liabilities at times. And then you, you're already at five and six, getting to Nick Holden, Adam Clendenning, Dylan McElrath, Brady Skay, Stjell. I don't know. I've never heard a play-by-play guy say his name. That's the sort of situation that the Rangers are in right now. So there's nobody else to go to but McDonough. And that works in his favor. Elon, you mentioned his career high was 43 points. That was back in 2013-14 when the blue line actually looks fairly similar as it does now. The next year, why, why did McDonough not repeat that? Well, the Rangers added Dan Boyle and McDonough's totals dropped to about 32-33 points. And then the year after, the Rangers added Yandel. And so his point total stayed in the low 30s. And then this year, the Rangers have nobody but McDonough again. And so he's going to get those power play points by default. I haven't heard any expressed desire from the Rangers to bring in a team in. I feel like if there was, they would have put more effort into getting that defenseman than adding VC and Gerby and Peary and Grabner. So yeah, by default, McDonough is going to have pretty good peripherals. He's going to be the default power play guy. Unfortunately, he's not some offensive dynamo that's really capable of taking severe advantage of those minutes, but he's able to do at least an average job in the role he's going to get. And that's good news for anybody that can, you know, sneak up and grab him. 
uh, amongst a, a pool of owners who doesn't realize that his value has actually risen by eight or nine points because of the departure of Dan Boyle and Keith Yandel. Yeah, this is definitely the type of guy that separates the hardcore fantasy hockey players from the people who show up at their draft with the list of the points from last season and are going to be drafting based on that. Or maybe some people are like more intense and get the last three seasons and averages them or something. I mean, unless you know the underlying reasons, you're like people aren't going to be reaching for Ryan McDonough. They might still be looking at him as a 35-point guy. And if you could get him as a 45-point guy, maybe with upside for 50. Like, I don't want to get crazy, but at least a 45-point guy should be reasonable. So, yeah, steal him in your draft if you're with noobs that aren't listening to Keeping Carlson. Which uh, so many of you are because you refuse to tell your competition about our podcast, which we respect but, like, maybe after you listen for, like, a year or two, you can just no, let them know. Give a okay. nudge. Don't tell them. Just give us a five-star review on iTunes. You're okay. with the world. It's fine. Fair okay. enough. All right. Let's move on to the next big signing that happened recently. Yuri Hoodler finally got signed. We were waiting for Verbata and Hoodler for so long. We talked about Verbata on the last episode signing with Arizona. And now Hoodler gets signed, very interestingly, with the Dallas Stars. And we all remember the hoopla last year when they acquired Patrick Sharp. And we were wondering, wow, if Sharp gets to play with Ben and Sagan, that's going to be huge. Even if he plays with Jason Spezza, that's a pretty good centerman to play with. I feel like now we say the exact same thing about Yuri Hoodler, right? Like we're going to have Ben and Sagan on the top line and their like third line mate is going to change a million times throughout the season. But, you know, it could be sharp for a bit. I don't know. We would have thought it could have been Hemsky. Patrick Eves sometimes shows up. But definitely, I would think that Yuri Hoodler is the type of guy. He's been proven to be a very complimentary third part of a top line. We all know how he did in Calgary when he was playing with Monaghan and Gojo. So it's an interesting opportunity for Hoodler. Brian, before we talk about who this hurts on Dallas, because I think there are a couple of names I could throw out there as guys that really are not happy about this signing, or they shouldn't be. But what do you think about Hoodler? Like, what's the upside at this point in his career? It's good. I mean, if you look at his last successful season it was not very long ago and depends on how you measure success of course but he had that 76 points in Calgary which was crazy like we all acknowledge that was like an insane version of Yuri Hoodler catching lightning in a bottle but the years before that he was still like a 50 55 point player off and on and then last year he had 46 points in 72 games although remember he finished the year in Florida with about 10 games or so where he was not getting a ton of offensive opportunity anymore. But I see I, I see that his joining the Dallas Stars is, is a good way to get back up to that 55-point mark. And a big reason for that, and we mentioned this on the Patreon cast, Elon, that just happened last week, is Jason Spezza. I feel like I feel like I say this about him every single show, that he's underrated. And I just don't know how many times I've said it. He is right up there with the league leaders in so many scoring categories, but never gets his due. He is an elite disher. And he, we saw it in Ottawa. And the thing that stands out for me from his time in Ottawa, right at the end, when Alice Hemsky came along and they were incredible together, that's sort of what I'm hoping is going to happen in Dallas, that Hoodler is going to join Spezza and they're going to make beautiful music together. We know Hoodler is not far removed from an incredibly successful season. He is not over the hill by any means. He is 32 and a half or so. So he'll turn 33 at some point this season. But I don't see a reason to think that he's going to fall below 50 points this year. I think it gives a huge boost to his draft value much more than if he had stayed with, say, the Florida Panthers. Yeah, it didn't seem like he was going to be cracking the top six in Florida. But with Dallas, like we've said all throughout the last millions of years, it feels like ever since we started the podcast, there's just been so many names that have taken a turn playing with Ben and Sagan. It seems like anyone who does is successful until they slip away. And this time he's someone who could stay there. Or like you say, maybe he could be with Spezza and that could be great. Dan here in the chat is saying a lot of dangle sauce on the ice with Spezza and Hoodler dishing the puck to each other. So we'll see. I guess maybe they need a trigger man. He's saying uh, who would be the third guy who could be Patrick Sharp and Patrick Eve goes to the top line. Like who knows what they'll do. That This is a team that you cannot draft for assuming you know how the lines are going to shake out. But one guy I think you might want to drop down your draft list if you were still wanting to give him maybe one more chance is Valerie Nichushkin. 
because he's a right wing that we've been waiting on forever. We thought that he would eventually earn his role in the top six and get all those points. Like as a highly anticipated prospect, he's gotten some opportunities. He hasn't been able to hold on to them. Like I wasn't planning on drafting him anyways, but especially now, you know, he's a right winger, just like Hoodler, just like Hemsky, just like Eves. Like he falls on the depth chart. He has another person that he's going to have to pass. And I think it's going to be very hard for Nachushkin to make a case for himself to be ahead of Yuri Hoodler on the depth chart this season. Cam in the chat room is saying, don't give up on him. Are you saying that, Cam, because you believe? Or are you saying that because you have him and you're just crossing your fingers and hoping for the best? I mean, here's the thing. Nobody's going to give up on Natushkin at this point, but nobody's going to reach to grab him the way that they have the last two seasons. This is probably the first season in a few that I think Natushkin is probably going to go undrafted in most leagues. And then if you're really savvy and things pick up, you can grab him off the waiver wire just like... I feel like he's going to need to do it for like three or four weeks, though, at this point. Like, he's alienated so many fantasy owners who have added him in the past that it's going to be like the new guy in your league or new girl in your league who hasn't been subject or been an observer to that failure time and time again from him. Who's going to, oh, who's this Nachushkin guy? He's on fire. They're going to grab him and be the first ones to jump on him after all the heartbreak the rest of us have gone through. I don't think it's over for him. But Yuri Hoodler being in the lineup certainly gives Dallas a couple other options, which I imagine Lindy Ruff was looking for after what happened last year. Yeah, I mean, it's not over for Nachushkin. Like, Hoodler's only signed for one year. Like, maybe he has a bright future still. But I'm saying for next season, I'm not expecting much. Cam is saying he's looking for him to be a dark horse. If you were thinking that before, I just think his chances went down. Anything's possible. I still remember last year in the Keeping Carlson Alton Patron Fantrax League when Nutrushkin got on the top line. He had a couple of good games in a row, and we used the FAB system, free agent acquisition budget. And people bid so much money on Nutrushkin. Like some people spend like $20 out of their $100 budget to get him just to probably drop him like a week later when he got dropped out of the top six again. So, yeah, good for Hoodler. Bad for Nachushkin, in my opinion. Brian, we talked about Redeem Verbata last episode, starting with Arizona. Who do you like better for next season, if you uh, could pick one of them? Absolutely, Yuri Hoodler. You know, they're both second-line guys, but if I had to nudge them up or down either way, it would be a pretty easy decision for me to want to nudge Hoodler up to the top line and probably relegate Verbata to the third line. I, You know, we saw what happens when he doesn't play with the center in Vancouver, and there was a whole lot of other stuff happening. I expect the situation in Arizona to be a lot smarter. But if he's not on the first line with Martin Hansel, the next top center with any NHL experience is Brad Richardson. And then it's Dylan Strom, who I imagine gets a chance to helm the second line. So maybe Strom Verbata could be an interesting combination to look for. I would still prefer Hoodler. There's also been a lot shown lately, and I shared some of these articles on the Facebook group about how effective Dallas has been at attacking their opposition and how great they're offensively. Like it's not just because they have Sagan, Ben, Svetza, Klingberg. They know how to attack very effectively. And I'm excited to see Hoodler get in on that. Okay, so let's move on to the next time. We've got a couple more before we get into our players who lost elite status. Interesting stuff, though. I think so far, these have all been players that I think, I guess, Hoodler also you take above these Rangers guys that we were talking about based on what you were saying about them. Here's a guy, I don't know what to do about this, but the Leafs signed Jonas Enroth who was like sort of an anticipate the final sort of good free agent goalie that was left in terms of someone who could be a decent backup. I don't think anyone was expecting him to be signed by a team as a starter. The Leafs had already traded for Frederick Anderson earlier. But the reason why I think this is maybe a more interesting signing than you might think is remember I mentioned those back-to-backs. Like I said, 19 was the highest for any team next season. Toronto comes in second with 18. So that's going to be 18 back-to-back games. And this is relevant because usually when a team has back-to-backs, they usually play their backup goalie in the other games. This is all of a sudden a lot of sort of guaranteed opportunities for Enroth. Even if Anderson's playing amazing, they'll probably want to give him a break and give Enroth a chance just to let Anderson rest. Plus, also, I know, Brian, you've pointed out many times that you still don't know if Anderson has really been proven to be a solid number one guy who could play a full season. You know, he was always sharing the net with someone in Anaheim. So considering that Enroth is going to get all of these games and he's an experienced backup goalie, maybe he's the kind of guy that if you're in a really deep league and people are drafting these backups, maybe he's someone you want to look at. Yeah, I think he is someone you want to look at. And Elon, we've disagreed already about Laner and Anderson and you know, the golf that you think exists, maybe golf is too lavish a word for it, but the difference in their fantasy value and how I think Anderson is closer to Lanner and you like Anderson a lot because he's the Leafs guy, but he's not used to playing huge workloads in the NHL. Remember, this is his very first starting gig. 
leading into this year, he's never played more than 53 games in a season, which, yeah, okay, that sounds like a fair bit, but it still leaves 30 games on the table for a backup to get, especially if he struggles. Like in that season where Anderson played 53 games, he posted his lowest career save percentage on the year at a 914. So there is a little bit of curiosity. And I remember at the end of last season, Enroth was also voicing his displeasure with how things worked out in LA, how he was the backup to Quick, and he signed there expecting to get serious playing time, and how it never materialized. I feel like one of the reasons he was still on the market at this point was because he was waiting for an opportunity where he would get some, maybe the most assurance possible that he might see some more time because he is a better option than a lot of already employed backups. If you're looking at their even strength save percentage over the last three years, he's points better, save percentage points better than guys like Kudobin and well, Zatkoff isn't much, Antti Ranta, Al Montoya, Carter Hutton. He's better than all those guys. He's magnitude better than Anders Nielsen and Jonas Gustafsson. So it makes you wonder that this could be a really savvy signing by the Maple Leafs and by Enroth. It could be a very mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, it's, it's a guy to watch, right? Like he put up his best save percentage, like single season save percentage last year with LA, 922. But you have to remember a backup goalie, like I said, he's usually gonna be playing in a back-to-back and usually the team will play their main goalie for the harder game than the backup goalie for the easier game. So I wouldn't be surprised if you look at like the games that Enroth played last season, they might not have been the hardest. With Leafs, there's probably not gonna be many easy games. So it might be hard for him to match his 922 save percentage from last season. But I do agree with you, Brian, that he seems like a very capable backup who could challenge Anderson if, you know, given the opportunity. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot about that back-to-back, harder, easier matchup game. I think the harder game is the one that comes second. So I'd be curious to see Mm -hmm. the numbers. Enroth playing behind a team that's tired or a team that's on the first night of a back-to-back. It's probably going to be a fairly different result for him, depending on which one it is. Or it's proven to be the case that a team plays worse in the second game of a back-to-back. I think that's clear. Okay, Elon, next. Second game of back-to-back might be a little harder because they're tired, but if you're playing against Columbus instead of Pittsburgh, you know, that makes a difference also. But okay, (laughs) let's go to the (laughs) next. I said next. Yes, next. All right, let's talk about the Avs. We already talked last week about how Patrick Waugh got fired. Or no, that's not true. That's what should have happened, right? But no, he, he resigned from the Avalanche. And we talked about how this was probably good news because we assumed that he's not a really good coach. And maybe now some of their players like McKinnon and Duchesne and Tyson Barry might, you know, have a better opportunity to score goals. Now they've announced who the new coach will be. Jared Bednar, I'm going to be honest, I hadn't heard of him before this. And I just want to know, Brian, just Quickly, like, is this good or bad? Does this change anything that we said last time? Is this the kind of coach that we could expect good offensive things from? Is he more defensive-minded? And we could be like, oh, this is good for Varlamov. Like, what do you know about Jared Bednar? Well, Wall couldn't be fired because he quit. Yes. Jared Bednar, I'll be honest, my first thought was that, like, that's the name Yaroslav Bednar is currently going by. Yaroslav Bednar is now playing in the Czech League. The former Washington Capital is the team I was going to say, but Florida Panther and a brief stint with LA, but sorry, we're talking about Jared Bednar, the now coach. I don't know, you know, he was still in the Avs organization. I haven't seen a whole lot about what his style was or what style he might bring. You know, he's obviously asked the token analytics question when he got hired and saying, what do you think of all the data that's out there? And he said, there's information out there. So you've got to pay, you'd be a fool not to pay attention to it. So, you know, that's, that's a good token answer i'm not sure i'm gonna buy in completely i mean it's the same group hiring him that hired patrick waugh he's an intra-organizational hire so how different of a philosophy could he really have i'm just hoping that he has a decent system that gives the young guys a chance to succeed up front tyson barry a chance to be unleashed as well and some i'm hoping for some goalie competition in colorado i want varlamov to really earn his number one spot this year Obviously, we talked about how Patrick Waugh loved Varlamov and was not often looking to his number two goaltender. I suppose that's the one thing I can really predict here. And Elon, I think you actually thought of it first, was that Calvin Pickard might get a longer look than he ever has. Yeah, so obviously something really interesting to watch. I think Pickard could be a sleeper. Brian, okay, you're in a deep league and you're drafting your last goalie. You already have your starters. You want to get that clutch guy. Are you drafting Enroth or Pickard? (laughs) Is that a bad question? No, my silence indicates that it's a good question because I'm going back and forth in my mind. 
I don't know, Elon. I honestly don't know. All right. Well, is that a fair question? I think I might take Enroth because I have a little more faith in Babcock creating a sound defensive system. There's a lot of good pieces in Toronto. The Avs blue line, I'm not sure, is quite as deep. So for that reason, I, I think I'd lean towards Enroth. I would take 30 games of Enroth assured, which is what I'm hoping. I'm not saying it is a sure thing. Over like you know 25 games, that Pickard is going to have to really fight to break that number. Okay, I disagree. I'm taking Pickard. I think he's put up really good numbers when he's played. But that's what makes it fun. Let us know in the chat room here who you agree with. Are you Team Elon and Pickard or Team Brian and Enroth? Oh yeah, there's still actually one more minor thing. I'll just bring up Florida traded Lawson Cruz and Dave Boland to the Coyotes. Seems kind of minor, except Lawson Cruz. By the way, he's not a nobody. By the way, I might be mispronouncing his last name. It's like Cruz Kraus. But he was drafted 11th overall in 2015, which is not that long ago. And that's a very high pick. He had 62 points in 49 games in the OHL last season. This is a good player. And he's going to a team that's not super deep. Like, I'm seeing he's a left winger. And who do they have? They have Max Domi, obviously. And then Tobias Ryder. I think we don't even know yet if Tobias Reeder, I think it is. I don't think we even know if he's going to be on the team or if he's going to the KHL. I don't recall if there was any resolution to that. But aside from that, who's there on left wing? Plotnikov? Like, I, I don't know. So I think that if Lawson Kraus, Kraus could make the team, maybe he could have an impact, someone to watch. Yeah, he could be a top nine guy in the NHL. Like, I saw some numbers being thrown out, I think, by Kent Wilson on Twitter that Kraus has a 44% chance of being an NHLer at this point in his career based on where he was picked. And I, I, yeah, I don't see him coming in and setting the world on fire. Maybe a serviceable option. He's, he's not somebody I'd be reaching for in a draft. I'd much rather have you're going to reach for a Coyotes rookie, Dylan Strom is the one you're looking at. Ah, interesting. Okay. So yeah, another guy. We just throw some names. Sometimes I'm keeping Carlson. Obviously, if we have a good sense of how we think someone's going to do, we'll let you know. Sometimes it's just a matter of us throwing some names at you. Add them to your radar. You know, put them on your watch list and we'll see what happens. He Arizona is a team where a lot of people should be given a chance. Maybe Cruz will be one of them. So now we have the next thing we want to talk about, which is the players who have lost elite status. Before we get to that, we don't have another promo today to give we just want to talk about our patron program this is like i said is the last summer series episode before we get into the preseason series which means we're going to be going back to weekly episodes we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up we've got the Schmorgoliesborg episode where we're going to talk about all of the goalies and all of the goalie tiers we're going to do an episode where we're going to be looking at all of the yahoo rankings and deciding which ones seem too high and too low we're going to talk about advanced stats we're going to talk about all the preseason we got a lot going and then we're basically going to go every week until the end of the season and we want your support so we would like to extend to you the offer to become a patron of Keeping Carlson. And I think there's a lot in it for you, okay? So we ask if you want to donate $5 a month to the show, you get, first of all, access to our Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook group, which is very active. People are asking questions all the time and giving you're getting advice from the smartest people for your fantasy team. You get access to our monthly patron casts where uh, every month we do a show, kind of like this, a live show, but it's up to the patrons. They ask us any questions they want, and Brian and I discuss it. It's usually a lot of fun. By the way, we have an RSS feed for the patron cast now, before I sort of just shared a link to the MP3s after the episodes. But now we have a real RSS feed. And I want to thank at Pez Rules on Twitter, Brandon, for giving us our logo. You can check out his website, by the way, weebcreative.com, W-E-E-B creative.com. Really cool designs. And you can check out, if you become a patron, you can see the patron cast logo design that he made for us. Okay. It's worth the cost of admission itself. <laughs> then you get access to the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantrax League, which we've talked about, and actually, which we're going to be doing a draw for in a second, but this is going to be the most ultimate league that you could join to become the, the smartest guy in the world, basically. If you could win this league, you're really smart because you're competing against other people who are paying money to support a fantasy hockey podcast. We've talked about it all throughout the summer. Definitely check out the episode we did a few weeks ago about designing a league where we talked about all of the pain that we went through to come up with the perfect settings for the cuckuffle. And then, Brian, we also have a new perk. Maybe how about you describe that? And I'm going to go get my lovely wife who's going to be doing the draw for who gets to jump from tier two to tier one in the cuckuffle. Okay, yes, our brand new perk that we're just rolling out. We used to have this $10 perk like when we first opened up the Patreon program. And we had like a huge demand for it that we couldn't keep up with it. So we actually, we took it away. If you would like to support the show, if you're still looking for more from us, uh, there's an option to get it now uh, for $10 a month. You will get a weekly invitation to something brand new we're creating called the Keeping Carlson After Show. So you'll actually get to stick around every single live recording, such as this one. You know, it happens every week. And you're going to get to chat with us and ask about whatever you'd like on a weekly basis. So that it could be about your fantasy team, you know, moves you're going to want to make 
on Monday. You can talk to us about it on Sunday night. You can clarify some things that you heard on the show just then, or if you had a question about a topic that we talked about, or you can, you know, there's a season of Survivor coming up, which we would be more than happy to chat with you about as well. So we love that you're listening to the show. Thank you so much. And there's also $1 a month if you just want to show your support. We hope we can offer you value for uh, for value proposition. I've heard that term and I wanted to try and squeeze it in there. I'm going to quote one of our current patrons. Dan says, being a patron is like having a direct connection to the soul of the fantasy hockey world. And it's true. You have access not just to Elon and I, but like the hardcoreest of the hardcore, the brain trust of fantasy hockey, in my opinion. I've learned stuff from the Facebook group. So we invite you in there too. Elon, you're back with your lovely wife. So I guess we can get started. Yeah, so I've got this Eric Carlson hat, right? I've got 13 pieces of paper here. I've got the dog. Can you make noise in the microphone with them? Okay, I've got the papers here. I've written the names of the 13 patrons who landed in the second tier of the couple. We decided that I'm going to be dropping down from the first tier. Someone's going to take my spot. And here we go. Dina, the lovely Dina, is going to be picking a name right now. So go ahead. What do we got here? Jeff. Jeff. Jeff is the winner. If if you're listening, Jeff, you know who you are. We'll message you after the show. Congratulations. You have been bumped up to tier one. Thank you so much, Dina. Thank you, Cody. For your help. Cody's a dog for the record. Oh yeah, for those of you who aren't watching live. All right, Brian, I hope you did a good job explaining the uh, Keeping Carlson after show because we have to move on. Sorry for all these advertisements. Let's get to the present show. Here we go. So we want, to ta- we want to talk about some players who have lost elite status. So guys who last season would have been drafted in like the top, maybe one or two, maybe three rounds of your pool. And now this year are probably not going to be drafted there. And we're going to discuss whether we think that's warranted or whether we think maybe there's still a chance for them to get back to their elite status. I want to start with Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff on Anaheim. So these are guys that perennially, like it's been like almost a very common thing that uh, you want to draft one of these guys in the first round. Some people would think of them as like a great, you know, if it's like a 12 team league, maybe you would grab them like 12 and 13 if you wanted the tandem, then you could get all the power play points on Anaheim. Last year, they both really fell off like 63 and 62 points respectively. I'm talking about them as if they're like one person, but you know, two people, but I just want to talk about them both at once because it seems like their offense is very highly connected, though maybe last year it wasn't. And one reason for that was because they were not playing on the same line with each other, but now they have a new coach. Maybe that'll change. So I'm curious to know, Brian, do we think that they are now low 60 point players, Perry and Getzlaff? And should we also then maybe not be so excited about players who get to join them on the top line if they're playing together again? Or do we think they could get back to like the 70 points, 75? Getzlaff was like a point per game a couple of seasons ago. So what do we expect for these guys going into next season? Well, here's a fun little tidbit just just to get the ball rolling. In the year that Corey Perry and Getzlaff played their first seasons in the NHL, when they were rookies, Randy Carlisle was also a coaching rookie with them. So they all broke into the NHL together at the same time, and they saw success. Not immediately, right? Ryan Getzlaff had 40 points in his first NHL season. Actually, that was really good in 57 games. But Corey Perry only had 25 in 56 games. But we've come a long way since then. And in all the years of the past in between, like you said, Elon, like these guys have shared the same fate for more or less the entirety of their careers, playing on the same team, same line. And even if you overlay their individual possession numbers or expected goals percentages or points per 60 rates, they are freakishly similar at times, especially towards the beginning of the career. But they have started to diverge just a little bit over the last year because of that different deployment. But with Carlisle coming back, I'm wondering exactly how they're going to be deployed. And my best guess is that they're going to be deployed together again. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to, let's just forget about peripherals. We know that they offer, like Ryan Getzlaff offers a lot of face-offs and Corey Perry offers a lot of hits. But I think what we want to know more about is their point scoring. And we all remember how the Ducks started last year in just this awful, dreadful offensive slump. And we talked about how, you know, you shouldn't get too apocalyptic about the careers of Perry and Getzlaff because, you know, they were actually working through terrible shooting percentages. Ryan Getzlaff didn't score a goal on an actual goalie. Like he scored an empty net goal, like 20 games into the season. And then another five or 10 games later, he actually scored a goal that got past the goalie. He took 85 shots on goal in the first half of the season, which is a touch less than his career average, but not a significant drop-off. He only scored on 3% of those shots, which is 
much lower than his career shooting percentage. That is just about 12%. So about a quarter of the shots were going in for him that he's used to seeing. And few remember that as soon as November, like October was awful, but Getzoff was still racking up assists. He had 13 assists in the month of November alone, thanks to Corey Perry lighting the lamp eight times in 15 games played in that same month. So together, they did start figuring it out in November, but the effect of that first month was so strong on people who had drafted them. There's talk that, you know, they've fallen off, their career is over. So the truth is that these guys actually both put up near 70-point paces over the last half of the season after Bruce Boudreaux made some adjustments right at the ship in Anaheim and the percentages started going their way. And what's really incredible about Ryan Getzlaff in particular is that his shot attempting and shot on goal rates for the last two seasons are actually the high watermark of his career. So he's actually posted some of the best shooting numbers of his career. While on the other hand, Corey Perry, he is showing more of a downward trend that you would expect of a player getting to about his age. So where does that leave them for next year? I know the situation doesn't exist, but I'm going to say it just to draw a contrast. If Bruce Boudreaux were still behind the bench, I would say that it looks like he found a real positive way to use Getzlaff, and that should help mediate any kind of decline that Getzlaff is facing due to age. And at the same time, I'd warn that as a sniper, Corey Perry probably does stand a slightly greater chance than Getzlaff of seeing a decline in his goal-scoring numbers based on the type of game he plays. But, of course, Bruce Boudreaux isn't behind the bench. Randy Carlyle is, and that's the X factor in this whole thing. That Boudreaux situation was the best-case scenario. You know, Getzlaff reasonably maintains his numbers. Perry falls off a little bit, and they both still maintain their value as pretty prime draft picks, but I'm pretty concerned about Randy Carlisle and how this team is going to perform under him. He came to Toronto and essentially submarine the team. Not that they weren't underwater already, but he didn't have any solutions to get them up to service and they were pretty stagnant underwater. And now that we're seeing some weird roster management choices being made in Anaheim that I don't quite understand, I wonder if Randy Carlisle is going to be captain of a sinking ship once again. His team's Even in his later years in Anaheim, when he was still with a talented team with the Ducks, they struggled to drive play. They struggled to get shots off. They struggled to win. He got fired, obviously. And if he can't coach a system that helps mitigate the effects of aging on Getzlaff and Perry, if they would lose a step normally under Boudreaux, they might look like they're losing a step or four under Carlisle if he doesn't deploy them in a way that helps them, again, mitigate the effects of the career decline that they're going to face. Uh, The bright sign in all this, though, is that there remains no internal competition at all for either of their jobs, so they should still see plenty of offensive opportunity, plenty of time on the power play, and, you know, at the end of the day, they're perennial top picks because they've been dependable guys over the years, including last year in their 31-year-old season. So I'm not about to tell you to back off from them completely. I'm just going to suggest that you proceed with caution, more so with Perry than I would suggest with Getzlaff. Getzlaff, I think, is a little more dependable with the game he plays, while Perry's, his goal scoring is going to drop off and there's not much he can do about it. So I would put Getzlaff a little bit above Perry because that goal scoring premium is going to shrink a little bit. So it sounds like you're saying maybe Getzlaff, you know, if you're saying they were both able to put up a 70 point pace after that horrible start to the season, sounds like you're saying we could depend on Getzlaff to still be around 70, 75 points and Perry maybe more like 65 to 70. So I would hope for Getzlaff to finish between 65 and 70. And I would hope for Perry to finish between 60 and 65. If you're hoping for like another 35, 40 goal season, I think that would be setting the bar a little high for him. I think under 35 goals for sure. I think 30 could be a struggle for Perry depending on how things go. But yeah, I would prefer Getzlaff and his assists over Perry and his dwindling goals. Interesting. All right. Well, so these are guys that maybe you'll be able to get a bit later in your draft this year. Actually, for sure, you'll be able to get them later in your draft this year than you would have been able to last season. So we'll see if it's worth it. Maybe. And you know, Elon, I just offered up a contradiction and I'm surprised you didn't jump all over. I said Ryan Getzlaff's assists might stay steady even if Perry's goal totals fall off. What do you think of that? Why? Because you're saying that all of Getzlaff's assists are the result of Perry goals. I mean, there are other people on the team. Like you have Ricard Raquel, who had a good season last year. I mean, I think it's possible for that to be true. Yeah, I think so too. I think the offense is going to have to come from somewhere. And I think Getzlaff is going to do uh, still a very good job of helping create it. I almost see him, I'm not going to say Joe Thornton light, because I don't think Getzlaff deserves that tag. But maybe a little more physical 
Joe Thornton, but Getzlaff has pretty good vision out there. All right, yeah. So we'll see. I, I like, I still like those guys, especially like you say, Ryan Getzlaff, and especially if you're in a league that counts hits, then they both still have value. But yeah, you could wait now. Don't draft them at the end of your first round. There's probably better options there. But if they're available still, second, third round, it might be a good opportunity to get them one last time, or at least one of them. All right, next player I wanted to talk about, Brian. Let's go to a guy on uh, Nashville who going into last season when he was on Columbus, people were so high on, right? So Ryan Johansson is, of course, who I'm talking about. And he was just coming off an amazing season on Columbus. Like he had had his rookie season where he was like pretty good. And then his next season where he really took off. And a lot of people thought that he was now going to become like a point per game player. And it really didn't end up happening, unfortunately. Like everything looked good for him. And things, as we know, didn't go very well in Columbus. He ended up getting traded. And even though he went to Nashville, it seemed like a great situation. He still only kind of put up like a 60-point pace at the end of the day. So with Ryan Johansson, he's definitely lost his elite status because I know a lot of people were reaching for him last year and maybe grabbing him in the second or third round. I don't think that will happen this year. Should we no longer be thinking of him as a potential guy who could approach a point per game? Or do you think he still actually has it and last year was just sort of an aberration with being traded and having that bad coach in Columbus? So I'm going to argue the same thing that I argued last year at this time was that 70 points from Ryan Johansson was an unreasonable expectation to begin with. He scored those 70 points on the back of an incredibly high on-ice shooting percentage fueled by a 73-point Nick Foligno. And if you look at his underlying numbers, you'll actually see that his offensive numbers were better the year before when he had 63 points than they were in the year that he had 71 points. So going into last year when everybody was saying, oh, he's definitely 70 points and he's only going to shoot up from there. He could be point per game. He might get 75 at worst. There was reason to doubt that. And the thing is that we didn't really get a chance to confirm those doubts because I suggested that it was going to happen because he didn't have good enough line mates and they weren't going to go on crazy tears the way they were the year before. But when John Tortorella came in, different hardships befell Ryan Johansson. He was in the coach's doghouse. His ice time was cut by two minutes. He was asked to play a lesser role altogether than he had before. So it was actually a really good thing when he was traded so that we could see what he could do in Nashville. That was a chance for us to see what he could do with solid line mates who weren't unsustainably spiking his on-ice shooting percentage. The interesting thing is that Johansson, even though everybody was down on Tortorella for cutting his ice time, he only saw about 25 more seconds of ice time per game after moving to Nashville. But the thing is that he did much more with it than he was doing in Columbus to that point of the season. In Columbus, he was scoring at a 56-point pace over half the season. After he moved to Nashville, he was scoring at a 66-point full-season pace, and that actually would have tied him for 20th in the entire NHL, a few points shy of guys like Giroux, Backstrom, Tavares, Bergeron. His rate stats also jumped from, say, Paul Stasny, Joe Colborn territory, all the way to, like, Claude Giroux, Corey Perry, Patrice Bergeron, Max Pacioretty territory. So you can just hear the difference in those names to get a sense of what kind of player he was last year. And now that he's on a team that trusts him, offers him excellent line mates the whole year round. He's also on the precipice of his prime years, having turned 24 this past July. Elon, I almost wonder if he'd have fit better with the crowd from last week of guys earning their elite status, because last year I, I withheld it from him. I wasn't ready to give it. And this year I am. So instead of asking oh, wow. the question, does he lose elite status? I would argue that he never had it and that he's actually stepping up into it. It's interesting. So I guess maybe we're using slightly different definitions because I'm thinking of it more in terms of like where they were drafted last year and where I think they're going to be drafted this year. You're thinking more in terms of the actual player themselves. And so if you think that Johansson is like an elite player now, like you would draft him in like the top two rounds in your pool? Like, would you draft him above like his line mate, Philip Forsberg? I would consider it. The only reason I might not is depending on eligibility. If he's a center and Forsberg has winger eligibility in your league, I'd probably lean to Forsberg. The thing is last year, I think where he was drafted, that's the right place for him to be drafted this year. I think it was too high for him last year, but it's about the right spot this year. If you were drafting Ryan Johansson high in the second round or early third round as like, a guy with 70 point upside. I think this is the year where that is a more legitimate choice. All right. So, so far we've talked about players who I think have lost elite status and you're still somewhat high on, maybe not so much Corey Perry. Cam in the chat room was now saying, 
Can you talk about Felino as well? Oh no, Cam, like you're already depending on Nichushkin. Now you're asking about Felino probably because <laughs> you have him as well. Nick Felino, I mean, you just have to look at the numbers. This is a guy who was never over like a 50 point guy. Then he had that one really good season. Then last year he went back to the 30 or so points that he ended up getting. And you know, when he had that great season, like Brian said, he was playing with Ryan Johansson. Like Ryan Johansson benefited from Nick Foligno having that high shooting percentage. But Nick Foligno, don't fool yourself. He benefited from playing with Ryan Johansson. And who is Nick Foligno going to be playing with this season? Not him, right? Like maybe Wenberg or... Dubinsky. Uh, Dubinsky. Like, Sam Gagne, William Carlson. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, basically Nick Foligno is not someone that I will be targeting in my draft. Like, I think he's a half point per game player at best. So I'm sorry if you're expecting more. Yeah, it would be a successful season if he scored more than 50 points. And that might seem like a crazy thing to say about a guy who scored 73 points just two years ago. But it is the sad truth. I mean, it's just kind of funny even to look at his points, right? Like if I go like five years ago, 47 points in Ottawa in his last season there in 82 games. That was his best season up to date. Then 19 the next year in only 45 games, to be fair. Then 39, then 73, and then 37. So like, I think that there's one aberration there and it's the season when he had over a half point per game. So I think he's going to fall back to that half point per game at best. Sorry, Cam. Hopefully, ask us for another player that you have that you're hoping for. Hopefully, we'll be able to give you good news on the third one. Third time's a charm, hopefully. Okay, Brian. I'm also getting tired of you like just saying that all these guys are still really good. So let me go to a guy that I know for sure has lost elite status, both in terms of drafts and in terms of like our opinions of his ability to be an elite fantasy player. And I'm talking about Henrik Zetterberg. So he was a guy who we still thought of as like a, you know, almost, not maybe not a point per game guy, but like a reliable 70 point guy. Then last year, things really fell off. He ended up with like 50 points on the year. And, you know, there maybe was some bad luck and, and some other reasons why he ended up there. But at the end of the day, you know, a 50 point season for Henrik Zetterberg is going to drop him very far in drafts. And I'm curious to know, Brian, I guess we already talked about him actually in the summer series. Where we were just talking about players who disappointed us and he was definitely one of them. You agree that he's not elite anymore, right? Like maybe he could get back to like 60 points or maybe he'll stay closer to 50. But I think we could all agree he's no longer the 70 plus point guy that we were able to rely on him to be if he was healthy for all those seasons. I'm going to agree with you and not just to make you feel good. No, he's not a sure shot guy anymore. He's not the guy that you can build your fantasy team around, that you want to lead your offensive core. The guy's going to turn 36 before this season starts. He's had some injury history. Datsuk isn't there. The coach is still questionable with the systems he's deploying. There's not much reason to believe that Henrik Zetterberg can anchor your fantasy team the way he has in years past. Last year's 50 points seemed low. Seemed low. I think he can do better than that. But the question is by how much? Okay, so let's go to the next guy who I think, I'm not sure if he belongs in this list or not. And I have a feeling he's going to be falling into the Ryan Johansson category for you. But I want to talk about Max Pacioretty for a second, because I feel like we all thought going into last season that he was about to become an elite player and people were drafting him as such. Like, first of all, for shots on goal and leagues that count shots, he had just been killing it. You know, he had in 2012, 2013, he had 39 points in 44 games, 163 shots. That's in a shortened season. Then he had 60 points in 73 games, then 67 points in 80 games. And in that 2014-15 season, when he had 67 points, which had been, you know, a surging up, he had 302 shots, over 300 shots. And then last year, he went down. He had 64 points in 82 games. And so the question is, now, I thought going into the year that he could be like maybe a 70-point guy and a really valuable guy for shots. He still actually did take a lot of shots, 303 to be exact, which ranked him, I think, third or fourth in the league overall. So not too shabby at all. But 64 points does not an elite player make. So is that where we should expect him to land at this point for the rest of his career, which is a very solid, good fantasy asset, but not an elite player? Or do you think he still can rise in the ranks and be like the type of guy that you'd want to draft in like your first two or three rounds? No, I think you're right. I think we've seen peak Max Pacioretty at this point. And he used to be drafted in those upper rounds as upside, as a guy who could hit 40 goals or at least 35 and go from there. We'll see how high he can go. He takes a lot of shots. He's great that way. He's able to pick up at least 30 assists to get his totals well into the 65-point territory. But like I said, I think I think we've seen the best he has to offer. And at this point, you're not drafting somebody who you've seen score 30, and maybe he's going to score 40 again, or maybe he's going to break the 70-point barrier. 
I think the Max Pacioretty we have in front of us is probably somebody who can pick up, you know, 30 plus goals, maybe 35 goals, 30 assists to go with it, about a 65 point guy. The one curious item about him is that this year, there might be still reason, even though like his aging curve suggests that we've seen peak Pacioretty, we might see him playing with the most talented center that he's ever had in Alex Galchenyuk. If those guys do get paired up as a duo, that could be a very interesting situation that would help Max Pacioretty sustain some value and maybe sustain some upside, some of the upside that people have drafted him on in recent years. But if Galchenyuk proves to be no better, say, than Placanitz has ever been for Pacioretty, again, I, I feel like you can stop hoping for the world with Pacioretty and you know, let him slide to where, you know, a 30-goal score would generally go instead of a 30-goal score with 40-goal upside. He's still a guy who you should draft pretty high if your league counts shots because he's the kind of person who could help you win that category every week. Hopefully more of them will go in. Yeah, and his shots on goals per 60 minutes, his rate stats were actually up last year. And it's also worth noting that his shooting percentage declined along with his goal total. So it's not even that he stopped taking shots at some point. Like I said, his shots on goal rates went up last year, even though his goal totals went down. And of course, he had that minus 10 that he was sporting. That hurts you in the leagues that count those stats. And that might not be an issue anymore if Carey Price does play a full season. We're barring along here, Brian. This is fun. I guess we're at nine o'clock already, but let's just get through the players we had planned. I wanted to quickly mention Jonathan Taves. Maybe he's the kind of player that sort of walks the line of whether he belongs in this episode, kind of like a couple of the others that I've mentioned. But here's a guy who a couple of seasons ago, well, in 2013-14, he had 68 points in 76 games, which is over a 70-point pace. And so at that point, a lot of, you know, that to me is elite production. Then two seasons ago, he went down to 66 points. Last season, down to 58. So, you know, maybe after a 66-point season, we weren't considering him elite, but still like a very, very solid player. That's more than Max Pacioretty was getting. But then last year, 58 points in 80 games, so I'm curious to know, like at this point, Jonathan Taves has gone from like elite maybe to close to elite and now to not replacement level, but you know, a middle of the draft kind of guy in terms of his point production. I know he helps in face-offs, but just in terms of points, I don't know, like what happened last year? Like why only 58 points for Jonathan Taves? Let's look at that. But first I want to say this so everybody hears it. This is the headline. Jonathan Taves is not a point per game guy. Say it again. Jonathan Taves is not a point-per-game guy, and if he doesn't get a point-per-game, it doesn't mean he's underachieving. He is not a point-per-game guy, and he has not been one since 2013. And since then, his even-strength shot and shot attempt production has decreased substantially, and his game has become, you could argue, more geared towards defensive responsibility. But the thing is that his production hasn't decreased to the point that I think last year's 58-point season is a harbinger of lean years ahead or any kind of indicator that he's lost it. You know, sure, it's the first sub-60-point pace of his career, and that's a little scary. But if you look at his 5-on-5 shooting percentage, you'll find an explanation for it. Look at it from 2012-2013 up till this season. This is how it goes in sequence. 16%, 13 13.5%, 14.3%, and 8.7%. So one of those numbers just doesn't belong. It's the last one, and I think we can expect a bounce back from that aberrational number so that Jonathan Taze can get back above 60 points. But there is a less fluky reason that he dropped from 66 points one year to 58 the next, and that can be found in his power play time on ice. He saw 60 minutes less last year with the man advantage compared to what he had been averaging the two years prior, and it showed straight up in his counting numbers. For the first time in his career, his 82-game power play point pace failed to reach double digits. And interestingly, his usage at even strength and shorthanded also remained pretty constant. So it's not like he was being given extra duties elsewhere, just that power play time was cut. And if your league counts shorthanded points, by the way, that could be something to look at. He grabbed a career high six points on the penalty kill last year. That, That can be a sort of fluky thing, but there is some value for an offensively inclined guy who sees a lot of minutes on the penalty kill. But the question is, at this point, where does he end up in terms of his projection, you know, I still think he can reach 60. I don't think he can reach 70. And there's one more challenge that's going to all but assure that 70 is unattainable for him. And that is apparent in the thinned out Chicago depth chart. If you look at the guys that he's had success with on his left side in his career, you've got Chris Versteeg, Patrick Sharp, Brandon Saad. Elon, what do those three names have in common? Mm-hmm. 
they're not on Chicago anymore. They're not on Chicago. And even like the backup options and Andrew Shaw and even Toivu Teravainen in emergency, also gone. So there's not a lot of help for Taves right now. You know, you've got Panarin. If he sticks with Kane, the next guy on the depth chart in Chicago right now is Andrew Desjardins and Brandon Machinter. I mean, Brian, Marion Hosa, right? That's the guy who always plays with Jonathan Taves. Well, no, but he's on the other side. He's on the right side. I'm talking about the left side. Oh, I see. But fair enough. We're getting to Hosa, who's getting older. And like you can see, there's serious slowing down going on in his own ability to drive play and point production. And as a lifelong Hosa fan, watching him come up in those electrifying years in Ottawa, it's sad to see, but it, it is the truth. There's a reason... Elon, that he's not even anywhere near this conversation, even though he used to be, uh, he's fallen off completely. So Taves, without having as much help from Hosa as he's, as he's used to seeing, and without having anybody ready to step in on the left side, he could sort of find himself on an island on that first line, having to do a lot of heavy lifting and maybe having a harder time producing a lot of points, which is why a 60-point season would be quite successful for him. 65 would be I think at this point, unbelievable. So I would have him for the low 60s. Okay, unless, Brian, this would be the biggest news possible for Jonathan Taves. What if Chicago's having trouble scoring and they decide to put Taves, Patrick Kane, and Artemi Panarin all on the same line? Could you imagine? If that happens, that will be the first fantasy hockey headline of the week because I'm sure that that line's going to score a lot and then no one else on the team is going to score. You know, I can honestly see some line juggling happening in Chicago more than in the past by necessity. This year, it'll be really interesting to see how one of the league's best coaches, Joel Quenville, handles the lack of depth that, again, he's never really had to face this issue. There's always been guys coming up, but now the cupboards are bare. There's no left wingers aside from Artemi Panarin, who is attached at the hip to Patrick Kane. I'm very curious to see what this turns out to look like in Chicago. Let's move on to the next guy I want to talk about. This is another one of those... Uh, Like, you know, I think that he's going to fall off of top tier status, but I'm not sure if he deserves it. So I'm talking about John Carlson right now on Washington. This is a guy who we talked about going into last season as an elite fantasy defenseman, the number one power play guy on Washington, one of the most dynamic power plays. Plus, if you're an elite that counts blocks, he gives you a ton of those. He had 55 points in 82 games last season or two seasons ago, which is really good for a defenseman. Then last year, he started off so, so well. Like if you just look at his splits, he had 10 points in 10 games in October, eight and 13 in November, nine points in 11 games in December. Then he got injured, which was very frustrating for his owners. Because if you recall, he was like day to day forever. So if you were in one of those platforms where you couldn't put him in an IR plus, he was just holding that spot on your roster for so long. Finally, he went on the IR. Then he came back and he didn't really have that strong of an end to his season, though I would imagine maybe that was partially due to his injury. If you'll remember, he came back for a game and then again went back on the shelf. So he ended the season with 39 points in 56 games, which is still like a decent play for a defenseman 39 points in 56 games that is a 57 point pace which is great it's actually higher than his pace was last year but I just have a feeling that people aren't going to be thinking about John Carlson maybe they'll be worried about if he's still injured or anything like that even though news has just come out on Roto World where he's saying that he feels 100% take that for what it's worth. I just have a feeling he's not going to be considered as a high elite fantasy defenseman. I think this might be a good chance, especially in a keeper league. Maybe this year people will decide, oh, maybe I don't need to keep him. And this could be your chance to snag him. He still is only 26 years old. So entering his prime, I don't think that he has much competition from like Niskanen to take over his job as the top power play defenseman on Washington. So I think he's a guy who has lost elite status in terms of where he'll be drafted next year. But I would also suggest to not be fooled Brian, do you agree or disagree? I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're perceiving that he might have lost elite status, perhaps it's happened. In my mind, it hasn't at all. Like, yeah, there was a really dry spell uh, right around the All-Star break when he had, I think, five points in like 17 games or somewhere around there. But as you mentioned, Elon, his full season pace, even with that dry run, was still it still exceeded his career high. And it's funny to think, you know, and I was going to go back before that and say how great John Carlson has been for so long. But before that, his career high was actually 37 points as recently as 2013-14. 
So the interesting thing is how fast he established himself, how he's on one of the league's most dangerous power plays now and has proven himself to be a capable contributor to it and how everybody is ready to hop off that bus. I don't think so. John Carlson is still an elite defenseman in Elon. He sees a ton of ice time too, so that gives him opportunity to block plenty of shots as well if your league counts those. Okay, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's wishful thinking as I'm going into the cacuffle season two, hoping that I'll be able to get a cheap draft value for John Carlson. Not anymore. I'm blowing it. Well, that's the cost of doing business, of doing this podcast. That's why I fell my, I dropped myself to tier two, so I don't have to compete with the super elite guys. Of course, now I'm really going to be putting out a target on myself for my tier two opponents. Okay, Brian, I guess that's pretty much it. We do have another sort of list of guys that we haven't mentioned. You may have noticed that we haven't mentioned any goalies yet. That's because we plan on doing a whole episode just about goalies in a couple of weeks. Schmore Goaliesborg is coming exactly two weeks from today. And then we'll talk about them all because I think there are a lot of goalies who going into last season, we would have called elite goalies, guys you could really depend on that really let your teams down. I'm talking about Tuka Rask. I'm talking about Bobrovsky, Rene. I'm even talking about Henrik Lundqvist at the end of the season. But we'll get into all of that in Schmore Goalsburg. And by the way, don't tweet at me telling me how great Lungfist was overall on the year. I know he had a great save percentage on the year, but in those last couple of months, he killed anyone who was depending on him for their fantasy hockey playoffs. So that'll be a lot of fun. Next week, we're going to be talking about, like I said, the Yahoo rankings. I think there's a lot of interesting things there, including the namesake of our podcast, Brian, is surprisingly low. We'll talk about why that might be and if that is reasonable. But for now, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to give us a five-star review on iTunes. It's like a free way to help the show and not have to, you know, give away your secrets to your league opponents, but it really helps us out. If you like the show, if you have any comments, you want to get in touch with us, tweet at us at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. We respond to all of our tweets. We have a lot of fun on Twitter. And if you really want to support the show, like we blabbed about a whole bunch in the middle, you could become a patron of Keeping Carlson. So check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron for more information there. Brian, anything else before I cue the outro music? No, I think I'll just add in that we have essentially decided to go live weekly with these shows, with our regular show. Please come join us in the chat. It's very easy. KeepingCarlson.com slash live every Sunday night around 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can join us in the chat and uh, have a blast. (laughs) That wasn't convincing. I want you to come. Just come. Yeah, it's fun. We have a good time. Uh, You know, if you follow us on Twitter, we'll be tweeting out the exact times each week, but our plan is around 8 p.m. And yeah, if, by the way, if you want to, for some reason, go back and watch the video of the show, you can also go to keepingcarlson.com slash live. Like if you're listening to this in the next couple of days before I change it to next week's episode, but then you could look at our YouTube channel and find the old links. If you want to see Dina pulling the name of Jeff out of the hat, that's all recorded on YouTube. Thank you, Google. But okay, with that, let us cue the outro music. And Brian, how about you read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and supported by our patrons, including some very recent ones like Brandon, Adam, Michael, Fred, Ethan, Michelle, Peter, Cody, Aaron, Corey, John, Matt, Jeff, Paul, Joe, Tyler, David, Ryan, Michael. If I missed your name, let us know. We'll get you on the next show. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Dauber Hockey's Frozen Pool, Roto World, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Corsica Hockey, uh, Jonathan Willis' work over at Bleacher Report uh, helped me with some Enroth research, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. And Fantrax. I use Fantrax for my research. Great job as always, Brian. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you all next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sand.